Last week we continued in the book of Acts and we opened up Acts 6 looking at Stephen. And if you were here, you will remember that Acts 6, 5 introduced Stephen to us and Acts 6, 8 brings him forward as a major character. I want to bring us back to that to help us into this morning's message. Acts 6, 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And as we spent last week developing that he was described as full of grace and power, we're reminded of what does it mean to be full of grace and power, but only to believe in the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sin. That Jesus Christ gave himself up as a ransom. And it's the only path for the forgiveness of sins That his death was enough. And that his death plus anything could never be true. That it's Jesus Christ's death that allows us to stand before the Father. That's to be full of grace is to stand in the full knowledge of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. And to be full of power means that you're believing in Jesus Christ and believing in His sufficiency to cover your sins and that according to the Scriptures in doing so, Ephesians 1.13, that you are marked by the Holy Spirit. And then according to Acts 1.8, given power. Friends, we leaned into that last week. In fact, we can never stop pushing ourselves, pushing other believers to those truths First, that we are full of grace, and then that we are full of power. I encourage you to write that, even on your bulletin last week. Your name, full of grace and power. That's what the Gospel proclaims to you. That's what it confirms about you. That's what it says. So Stephen was a normal person. He was just like you. He was just like me. He was trusting in Jesus And he was living out his faith. Last week we stepped into the conflict that he was having with the members of the Freedmen Synagogue. And the stand that Stephen took over the centrality of Christ for salvation, that he was preaching a message that opposed the culture, and it brought men to his face to confront him over the centrality of Christ. People who wanted to preach that temple worship was enough. And yet Stephen would say it's not sufficient. And so Stephen contended and he chose the right argument to make his stand. Last week I put before you that as believers in Christ, there are many arguments we should be willing to lose to win that one. That Jesus Christ alone is sufficient and Stephen makes that stand. So last week we heard his accusers accuse him of blaspheming Moses and of challenging temple worship. So this morning, as we pick up in Acts 7, we will lean into Stephen's response, which happens to be the longest recorded message in the book of Acts. And then we'll see the outcome of his ministry. But as we do, I want you to have ears for two things. Because on one hand, Stephen is absolutely responding to these criticisms that are given. 
And on the other hand, he's going to unfurl for you a tremendous testimony of God's faithfulness through trials and challenges. That's what I want you listening to as we read through this. Stephen preaching to a crowd from a synagogue that has pushed back on him all the way through to the Sanhedrin and the holy priest, the high priest, saying, you're blaspheming. Stephen stands up and you know it's easy for us at times to think the Bible would be much simpler if God just gave us rules and directions and just lines, do this, do that. I mean, it'd be easier if Stephen would have just said, you sit stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. You resist the Holy Spirit. And yet that's not how the Bible lays out. That's not who our God is. We have a relational God who relates to us through relationship and has moved through His people So Stephen, who is just like us, but clearly memorizes more Scripture than most of us, right? Because that brother walks through from Genesis 12 all the way through the book of Exodus into Joshua, picking up parts of 1 and 2 Samuel. He covers the history of the Old Testament to put before people the consistent themes. God is always faithful. And men are always falling short. God is always faithful, even in challenges, even in hardship, even when you don't understand it. God was always faithful. We see that in calling and leading Abraham. Then Abraham stops in Haran. We see God is faithful in fulfilling His promises that He made to Abraham and Sarah and giving them Isaac and then giving Isaac Jacob. Then Jacob's sons go and sell Joseph. God is faithful in redeeming Joseph over and over and over again, yet sin, not his own, sin is always beckoning at his door to oppress him. And God is faithful in raising up Moses, and Moses kills an Egyptian. And God is faithful in redeeming and bringing Moses back, and the people reject him over and over and over again, even turning to complete idolatry. So Stephen uses this testimony of God's Word, of God's movement through God's people to testify to God's faithfulness and men's disobedience. The men always turn to pursue what is right in their own eyes to steal the words from the book of Judges. So Stephen is pointing out This pattern of what's happening over and over and over again. That they're missing out on the heart and the character of God the Father. And they missed even who Jesus was. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you know what happens next. Stephen is stoned to death. He's stoned to death. We can't miss that. Because in the middle of a message where he's testifying to God's faithfulness and men's disobedience, He's stoned to death. The crowd is angry to the point of 
rage. And he's stoned to death. And in the midst of that, Stephen looks up, and this is what I want you to pay attention to, because I think this is one of the most significant parts of this text. Because when Stephen looks up, what does he see but the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God? Now, if that doesn't stick out to you, it should. Because the normal picture in the New Testament of Jesus is sitting on his throne. We see a picture of Jesus sitting on his throne, ruling, and yet that's not what Stephen sees here. He sees Jesus standing. And it testifies something, it says something to us. And we'll come back around to that here in a minute. Because Stephen keeps talking, he says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open up, he describes it, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, even more rage. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They were so unwilling to hear truth that they plugged their ears. My four-year-old does that from time to time. When I'm talking to her, I ask her to do something, she'll go... to make it very clear she doesn't want to hear me. And as much as I can challenge my four-year-old to do that, I would suggest to you that some of us still do the same thing to God, do we not? More amens need to be said to that. We're all tempted when we hear God's word, when we hear truth, to go, "Mm, not for me. That's for everyone else. They need to be listening to this. And these Men are so wrapped up in themselves and their own tradition, they stop their ears, they rush at him because he's threatening their establishment with God's faithfulness and Jesus Christ. Then they cast him out of the city and stone him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke always testifies. He gives you these precursor views of characters before we get to them. Obviously, we'll get to Saul later. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So let's put Scripture in context of what's happening here. Men, holy men, righteous men, the men the world esteems as religious, get so angry that they start picking up rocks and pelting them at somebody. And Stephen, on the ground, getting hit by rocks, says, Lord, receive my spirit. And upon being hit with even more rocks, has the thought process to forgive them. Now, I don't know if that's the most challenging part of this passage or not, but I think it might be. I haven't been pelted with rocks, at least not to death before. And his heart is forgiveness. And then he falls asleep. Church, what I want to submit to you is that Stephen, the deacon, this normal guy who's following Jesus, is preaching a message for them forecasting his own death. 
He's almost preparing them for it. So that ahead of time, they will have already seen this overt theme of God's faithfulness and man's disobedience. That they would have seen that over and over and over and over again as God was making himself known and seeking to have his glory go out and God's people were like, nope, nope, shutting the door. Stephen is killed for his faith. Stephen becomes a martyr. That's what the word means, to be killed for your faith. And here in Acts 7, it's significant because Stephen is the first one. So church, let me ask you this. When Stephen is thrown down on the ground and pelted with rocks until he breathed his last breath, was God faithful? Was God in the middle of it? Absolutely He was. And 2,000 years later, while reading the Bible, it's pretty easy for us to agree. But what do you think Stephen's mom thought? What do you think Stephen's friends thought? Or even the disciples? You don't think this cast a little bit of shade for them? How could this happen? He was young. He had such a career ahead of himself. Do you know what he was going to do for the kingdom? Do you know the testimony that guy had? You would not believe what was going on with his co-workers. I, I suspect the people were really pretty challenged by that initially. What is God doing here? Is he faithful? And I think Stephen's message had to put forward to them as they recounted it later. God's overarching theme of his faithfulness. That God was faithful when Abraham and Sarah struggled to not have kids. They were in their 90s. You know what a struggle that would have been? To have been cast down by everyone else in her culture? She was in her 90s. Was God faithful in that? Absolutely. Do you think God was faithful to Joseph when as a little boy he's chucked in a hole? and then drug out of a hole and sold into slavery. Was God faithful on that day? Absolutely He was. Was God faithful when He called Moses, even though there's a family going, are you kidding me? He killed our son. Do you know what that guy did? Yes. And God was faithful even when the Israelites turned their back on Moses time and time again, let alone turning their back on God. Church, can I submit to you this morning that when we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, when we call Him King, when we acknowledge Him of the Lord of our lives, that we submit ourselves to His bidding for His will. We allow ourselves to be used by Him in whatever way He desires to bring Him the most glory, whether we would choose it, whether we want it, or whether we understand it. For Stephen and his family, that was stoning. For you, that could be any number of challenges that are before you now. We could call that cancer. We could call that a hurricane. 
We could call that marriage child difficulties. We could call that difficulties getting pregnant. You name it. Do I know why God puts this before us? I have a clue. But I do know that he's faithful. And I know that somehow he uses these things for his glory. That somehow he takes hurt and broken and wounded people and uses them for his glory. January of 1956. Nate Saint, along with Jim Elliott and Ed McCauley and Pete Fleming and Roger Uterin, landed a plane on a beach not far from the Horani people, the people that they were trying to reach with the gospel. And they were all killed on that beach that day. You might be familiar with their story because of Elizabeth Elliott or even the 2006 movie End of the Spear. But the story didn't end with their dying. No, they went to the Horani people to bring them Jesus. And two years after they died, Rachel St. Nate's sister and Elizabeth Elliot and her three-year-old daughter Valerie, which I'm pretty convinced the church thought was a poor decision, decided to forgive those people and move back into that tribe and to build relationships with those who would come to know Christ for these people that those five guys had prayed over and over and over again that the Horani people would come to know Christ, not knowing that they would be martyred for the cause. And it became a catalyst for the gospel to go forth. And now there's a thriving church among the Horani people. They came to salvation. Now I could fill up literally weeks with stories like this. For there are thousands upon thousands of stories to be told of people who were martyred, killed for their faith, and how the gospel has gone forth because of it. One of the privileges I had in Papua New Guinea was to sit down with a gentleman who was uh, Gracia Burnham's brother-in-law. If you're familiar with Martin and Gracia Burnham, her husband Martin was killed uh, probably 10-15 years ago. And his brother was in Papua New Guinea serving as a plane mechanic. What do you talk about with a guy whose brother is a martyr? Hey man, how's it going? How'd that go for you? Well, it's pretty hard. How are you doing with it now? You would not believe the incredible things God has done since my brother died. You wouldn't believe the testimony that Martin's life has had to other people. You wouldn't believe the missionaries who were going forward because Martin died. You wouldn't believe how God has used this. Now, I'd suspect the Burnham family, I've met Gracia twice, had a pretty hard time with her husband, brother, thought dad dying. But God used that to stoke the fires of the faith of others and to build people up. There are thousands of these stories that could be told that could be added to the testimony of Stephen who preached just before he died of God's faithfulness in the midst of the unfaithfulness and the sin of others. That God is at work, that He is moving. And somehow... And somewhere, He uses our pain to push forth His kingdom. 
that the testimony of the suffering church is the greatest testimony that we have. That where you are and the pain in your soul that you are enduring, the world knows. For you are not alone in whatever it is God has called you to walk through. And do you know that God has a plan for that? It doesn't have to be today. It doesn't have to be this week. It doesn't have to be next week. But God wants to use that in you to stand beside other people who are struggling to say, man, I know it hurts. Jesus is faithful. He can walk you through this. He did me. Last night at 11.48, my aunt passed away. I sent a text message to my cousin this morning. Welcome to the worst club on earth. My mom died 20 years ago. I know what she's going through. I can stand beside my cousin and say, man, Jesus will be faithful to you in this. He will be good to you in this. I don't know what that looks like today, but just trust Him and keep putting one foot in front of the other. Friends, when Stephen got done preaching, he looked up and Jesus was standing. And Jesus was standing, I think, I don't know this, I'm going to speculate, I think Jesus is standing because he's in control. Jesus was not caught off guard in this moment. There's no part of men picking up rocks to throw them at the Lord's servant that he's like, I didn't see that coming. Jesus asserted his sovereignty in that moment. I think he's standing because he's sovereign. And he's about to call Stephen home through the rocks of some pretty unfaithful guys. And that even when sin is abounding, Jesus is ruling and he's faithful and he's there. Jesus was responsive in this moment. He made himself known to Jesus in some special way. How else does he cry out? With any forethought, forgive them. Just like Jesus did on the cross. Stephen had peace because Jesus was in control, even when sin was abounding. Everyone's favorite passage, Romans 8.28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 was true in the life of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and Ed McCauley and Pete Fleming and Roger Uterin. It was true in the life of Martin Burnham. It was true in the life of Stephen. That we've been called according to his purpose. And friends, sometimes his purpose might be our pain. Sometimes his purpose might even be our death. I suspect Elizabeth Elliott came to know that. I suspect the Burnham family came to know that. I suspect Stephen's family and the disciples came to know that. Because as we move out of Acts 7 and into Acts 8, you see the church start to blow up in a way 
that was foretold by Jesus. You start to see the gospel proliferate and go out in an unusual fashion that just as in Acts 1-8, Jesus said they would be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, somehow this moment of Stephen's death, which increases persecution, by the way, increased persecution always blows up the church. Let's just be real honest about that. The gospel starts to go forward, and in Acts 8, you see the gospel going out into Judea. You see it going out of Samaria, and it builds the church. Which is to say this. Friends, I know not the pain or the suffering that you have this morning. But I do know that God is faithful, and that He has a purpose. And that His purpose sometimes involves our pain or our suffering, or even our death. But it's for His good and for His purposes to make Himself known. Fellow Americans, we live in a culture where we have tremendous excess. What other ways do we suffer? Than through medical difficulties? Challenges and struggles? What other ways do we have to testify before all those who sit around us of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ than when we suffer? For in my plenty, I cannot stand before my neighbors and say, well, I have Jesus and he's enough. Or they would just look at me and say, of course. You live in a nice house, you drive nice cars, you've got a pretty wife. But when we're called to suffer, we have a testimony We get to be His witness through the Holy Spirit in a way and in a strength that we do not have or do not want to have to stand up and to say in the middle of the worst day or the worst night or the worst week or the worst month or the worst years of my life, I didn't see it at the time, but God was faithful. Jesus was kind. And He wasn't sitting. He was standing and attentive to me, so that we can stand next to, sit by, and put our arm around those who are suffering. Friends, if you are hurting and suffering this morning, I know not why it happens. I do know Jesus can use it. And I encourage you with this. Keep looking to Him. Know He's standing. And even when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, Put one foot in front of the other and He'll make Himself known. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, as we look at this text where Stephen preaches most of the history of the Old Testament, we see the unfaithfulness of men and the faithfulness of God. Father, a story that gets played out in reality in Stephen's life. Father, as he's stoned, Many of us can look at the own pain and struggles that we have, the suffering, and wonder how or if it could ever be used by God or what purpose it has. God has a purpose for all of it. He has a will. We won't always understand it. We won't always see it. But we lean into a God who is faithful. He's faithful to Abraham. He's faithful to Jacob. And He's faithful to Moses. And He's faithful to Israel. And He's faithful to His disciples. He'll be faithful to us. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.